This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Digital Humanities, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Katie McDonough, one of the hosts of this channel. Today, I'm going to be talking to Andrew Piper. Andrew, welcome to the show. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I'm a professor at uh, McGill University in the Department of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures. I direct Text Lab, which is a laboratory for cultural analytics at McGill, and I also edit the Journal of uh, Cultural Analytics. Great. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here, and we're talking about um, Can We Be Wrong? Uh, This is uh, a book published with um, Cambridge um, University Elements, which is a a series of shorter works, Uh, and um, this book came out in in 2020, Uh, and I'm I'm really interested in, if you could just say a little bit about how you sort of chose this venue for this work. Uh, I know that's something uh, that a lot of listeners who are working in the digital humanities will be interested to, to hear about? Yeah, it's a good question because uh, publishing in digital humanities is not obvious or, or straightforward, I think. Um, and so this, when I saw the kind of call for this element, I was, I was very happy and very excited to see it again, because it's, you know, certain presses are kind of testing the waters in this space, but they don't always have the editorial boards or peer review networks that are really reliable to give you a good read on uh, this kind of work. Mm -hmm. And so having kind of dedicated digital venues or venues dedicated digital humanities is going to be really important for the field moving forward. So this was a really nice opportunity. Um, I sort of knew through research networks, uh, some of the editors, and so it seemed like a, a really nice fit. Um, I also really liked the uh, length kind of structure, Um, this kind of mid-range, you know, longer than an article, but not quite as big and baggy as a full-on monograph. And um, that personally kind of fit the topic we were working on in the lab very well. Um, In some sense, generalization um, is a kind of enormous topic because it's a very challenging concept to get your head around and how it relates to research. Um, On the other hand, we wanted to do something very sort of targeted and figuring out, um, you know, is this a practice that is alive and well in humanities and literary studies? Uh, And if so, what should we do about it? And so that length gave us the ability to go past a research article where we sort of detect something, talk about the method and, you know, discuss it a little bit to really have the space to elaborate and reflect on the theoretical consequences of what we were seeing empirically, um, which is obviously what, what we'll talk about here. But the, the 
format was, I found very, very valuable and a really nice, it, it allows you to get into a topic with a certain amount of depth, but also allows you to get out of a topic and move on. Um, and I think that kind of framework is really valuable for the field as an, as a quickly evolving field. I think these kind of shorter uh, formats are going to be very useful for us. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a really exciting series and um, there's additional works coming out, which I'm looking forward to, to reading soon. Um, so you mentioned pursuing this work in the context of the lab. And I, I wondered, um, you know, if, if this was a kind of like a publishing editorial uh, background to the, to the book, why you and the team uh, of researchers that you were working with actually decided to, to write this book at all? What, what um, were the origins of the project on generalization? It, it sort of took shape through pretty informal discussions in the lab where we were working on various projects and kind of, you know, this was several years ago and, you know, still very much in an exploratory state at that point with different research assistants. And this was also pre-COVID. So we had a pretty nice, like, sociable atmosphere um, where we, you know, people drop in, we talk, we hang out, we work on things, we laugh. Um, and so it was a really nice space to be in. And one of the things that kept coming up over and over again was when we were engaging with secondary literature on a given topic, the kind of claims people were making were, were just really kind of outlandish. Um, and we we kept sort of running into this phenomenon. We kept thinking, you know, somebody should write about this or do this or test this. And, and, and I, as someone sort of embedded in the discipline, would sort of say, well, you know, the issue is we, we as a field seem committed to this ideal or ideology that um, we don't make generalizations. We talk about particular things and there's this sort of real uh, emphasis on particularity. And you kind of hear this informally a lot. Um, and, and then we kind of looked at each other. And we're like, well, that doesn't line up at all with what we're seeing when we read um, articles and literary studies, that there are these very broad claims being made. And so at a certain point, we kind of it became a, a bit of a like, well, can we test this? And that that's always been kind of one of the, the jokey models in the lab, which is, um, you know, somebody says something and say, hey, we can test that. Um, and so we decided, hey, can we test generalization? Is this something um, that is a, a recognizable discursive practice? Um, and if so, could we teach machines to detect it reliably? And then what would that tell us about these disciplinary practices? So it kind of emerged from this uh, sort of surprising frustration encountering um, literary research and its practices. And then as a kind of research challenge of, is this something um, that um, we can use machine learning tools and machine learning models to detect and better understand uh, where this practice is happening, how often it's happening, what its shape and nature is. Um, and so it moved from a kind of challenge testing framework to a kind of understanding framework. And once we knew more about what's going on with this practice of generalization, then we have sort of left with the bigger question of, well, what does it mean? And what are we going to do about it as a field? And, and that's where it kind of pivots from being um, a team project of people working on something collaboratively to a kind of uh, me project reflecting on the state of the field as someone embedded in that field and who's been practicing in that field for quite a while now. Uh, and, and that was also tricky with respect to the authorship of the, of the element where to do the machine learning process and to do the annotations. And we can talk about sort of the, the nuts and bolts of that. Um, that was a very collaborative collective process and also involved researchers from other disciplines. When it came time to sort of discuss and reflect on the implications of our findings, 
that was really just something that I undertook as a practitioner, um, you know, making recommendations and reflecting on the history of the field. And that was very much a kind of intellectual history that uh, I as an expert had, but that the other people involved from other disciplines or at different levels in their careers didn't have access to. And so that that's where it sort of pivots to being much more of a monograph at that point. Yeah, the, the authorship issue is really interesting. And I'm, I'm, in the work that I'm involved in, just thinking about, you know, when when we're drawing on other people's expertise and when we're doing individual work is, of course, is is complicated. And so I know people will be interested to hear, um, you know, what there are always lots of different solutions to this and projects have different configurations. And of course, um, not only in the beginning, but as those change over time. So that's really interesting context. Um, I just wanted to dive into into the book, uh, and and really ask you to uh, for the listener who hasn't encountered the book yet. Um, I, I was interested in the way that you set up the book by introducing Laplace's work uh, on kind of understanding error in relation to scientific observation, uh, and the claims that can therefore be made from those observations. Uh, so as the kind of first uh, t- touchstone, um, the second being what, what you call the curse of Lorenzo v- Valla, and I'll, and I'll, I'll let you maybe um, explain that uh, to the listeners. And, and finally, the open science collaboration and, and kind of the push towards um, uh, d- making science reproducible. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested in kind of the, how you came to these as key touchstones uh, for the book uh, how you see them as being related to each other uh, and the issue of generalization in, in literary studies. Yeah, so I, I think there's different routes into the question, and I think that's very reflective of the project. In some sense, you know, a book reflects a kind of end point of thinking and you've sort of organized your pathways. And I think the reality of this project was that I really struggled or wrestled for a long time with, you know, what are the ways in which we can think about the genealogies of generalization in the field of literary studies? And, and I think there, there are obviously many versions of that story one could tell. Um, and, and the examples you touch on and that, that are in the book are the ways in which I came to terms with where this practice has come from and different kinds of purposes that it's served and why there seems to be this kind of lingering tension around it, which is, goes back to Vala. Um, and so, you know, I, it really germinated from an encounter with contemporary scholarship. And I use that example from Frederick Jameson as just kind of a classic uh, case of overreach of making the broadest, most sweeping generalization without any limitations, without any uncertainty. Um, and all for these kind of charismatic ends, as I say, Jameson's uh, success and fame is kind of inversely related to his hesitation and caution as a researcher. Um, the more outlandish and large-scale claims he makes, the more successful and cited and famous he becomes. And, and I think there's a structure to that in the humanities, that char- charisma is rewarded over empirical certainty. And, and for sure, for me, that's the kind of reversal that I want to see happen. Um, and so I try and figure out like what are the what are the genealogies we can tap into to help us think our way through the pathways forward. Um, and so one of them is this uh, kind of 18th century move away from best examples 
to collective examples. That is to say, moving away from like the canonical, this person is probably the best uh, recorder of star sightings or planetary sightings. And so they had their best day today. And we're going to go with that uh, as the answer, um, which would sort of uh, align with like, here's the best book to talk about the 19th century with, um, to uh, estimation, to saying, well, we have all these observations. And um, if we want to generalize about that pathway or this century, then we want to aggregate all of those and take some kind of summary uh, understanding of them to estimate something about that century. So this process you know, takes a very long time and is very interesting in intellectual history, and it's affected lots of other disciplines. And the question I kind of came away with was, why, you know, why hasn't it entered into literary studies? Um, and I think, you know, one answer is ideological and the other is methodological. Um, the, the origins and emergence of the humanities, in particular literary studies, has been strongly driven um, by a kind of anti-empirical, uh, anti-quantitative stance. Um, on the other hand, there's just methodologically not been the tools to be able to use data-driven, quantifiable methods, statistical methods to understand questions that we're interested in. And that's what's changed in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and so with that change has come all of these opportunities to begin to make more empirically grounded statements about the things that we're interested in care about. So, you know, th- those are those are kind of the, the flashpoints and the motivations and the, the touchstones that I, I look into are ways that I could sort of explain to readers, here's a tradition of inquiry that stretches back several centuries in our field that is deeply invested in empirical truth and being accurate about the documentary past, that it's not exclusively about its subjective interpretation. And we see that in Vala. At the same time, in Vala, we also see this sort of speculative dimension where he fills in the historical record with his kind of creative imagination. And that's important, too. And, and so that, that forking path became the kind of foundation of the book where I wasn't just going to say, hey, we need to become like sociology. But in fact, there's these sort of two traditions within literary studies. I think they're both important, but we can't mix them the way Vala does. We can't just sort of throw speculation and empiricism like Jameson does. Um, If we want to make empirical claims, we should use the best empirical methods we can for that. And if we want to be speculative and dreamy and open and creative, let's do that. But we can't sort of mix those streams. And I think that's the risk of credibility that I talk about in the book. Yeah, that that's great. That's a great summary. And we'll come back to some of that stuff at the end. Um, I wanted to sort of dive into the meat of the book, right, where you're testing this, this sort of proposition about um, where and when and in what ways is generalization happening in literary studies. Um, so could you, I just wondered if you could um, describe the setup of the experiment that you ran um, with your colleagues, uh, and, um, and then I'll uh, follow up some questions about what, what you guys uh, learned from that experiment. Yeah, so we, it's a, you know, one of the things that I was hoping that would happen with this book or sort of emerged in the process of writing it was the realization that we had gone through a process to use machine learning to understand this sort of complex concept called generalization. And that I wanted to share that process with people too, because I don't think it's obvious if you're coming from the humanities on how to utilize these tools for these analytical ends. And it wasn't obvious to me, and I had to sort of work my way through that. 
um, with with colleagues. And so I sort of document that in the book. And and what it starts with, right? It always starts with a kind of definition, a conceptualization of something. And so that took some time to figure out what do we mean by generalization? Where is it happening? Um, and is it something that's a, a document level property? Is it something that happens at the paragraph level? Is it something that sort of you have to extrapolate from the text that doesn't really reside in the text explicitly, but is something that readers kind of infer? And these are all kind of options. And what we do is with this you know, very kind of extensive experience of close reading where all of us would sit down and read the same articles, highlight passages that we felt were generalizations, and then talk about what they had in common, where we disagreed, where we saw the problems were. And gradually through that process of, of very, very close, very, very detailed reading, uh, we arrive at an understanding, a shared sort of shared understanding of our concept and idea. And then, you know, that's kind of the fun part. Then comes the rote part, which is saying, okay, well, we need to uh, flag this. We need to annotate it such that we can train a machine to also find it at larger scale. So, you know, the affordance of machine learning is if uh, we can identify recognizable discursive linguistic patterns, then in theory, we can train machine learning algorithms to detect those patterns for us at larger scale so that we can move past the ability to say, well, I, you know, I looked at a couple literally thousands of examples. Um, but that's not that many compared to how many sentences and statements there are in this entire field called literary studies. And so machine learning really allows us to scale our observations. But in order to do that scaling, we have to really, really check every step of the process to figure out, does it scale well? Is there an artifact of the modeling process that's going to warp our findings away from what we see as sort of human readers? And we also have to wrestle with the problem of agreement. That is to say, I might look at the problem one way, but my colleagues might look at the problem another way. And so using this kind of collective annotative process is very, very important for trying to think about these concepts as consensus driven, as something that you and I might agree on. And then how much can we agree? Like what's the ceiling of agreement where ultimately we're never going to agree 100% of the time, but we agree most of the time. And being able to put numbers to these things is very, very valuable. So we can sort of assess like, oh, this is a concept that's quite, quite fuzzy um, and is really hard to achieve agreement among uh, human readers, or this is a concept that's pretty straightforward and people reach agreement pretty well. So what we do is we kind of walk through these stages of conceptualization, then annotation, then we build models to see and we validate those models against our annotations. Um, and the only thing I would sort of mention that was unique to this book was it really relied strongly on a, a single expert annotator, me. And ultimately what I found was that it was very hard to marshal uh, colleagues time and energy to do the kind of annotations that we needed. I was invested enough in this project to do it, but we wanted to make sure that my annotations would be uh, sort of aligned with other people's ideas. And so we used a kind of smaller sampling procedure to test and check that. And what we see is that um, our agreement is aligns, my agreement with them aligns with their agreement amongst each other. That is to say, the ambiguity is sort of constant from one group to the next. And there's sort of a ceiling of like generalization is a hard concept. We're never going to get to full agreement on it, but we get to sort of reasonable agreement to have some confidence that we build our models that what they're finding are things called generalizations. Yeah, the, the process of annotation is so central and so important and, and fraught with potential, uh, you know, downstream consequences, as, as you talk about. And I was just wondering how the work of annotation itself 
shaped your thinking. You mentioned in the book that you you ended in a very different place uh, than you started in terms of thinking about generalization. What role did uh, actually doing the annotations uh, play play in that change? Yeah, I, I mean, annotation, I think, is going to be, it, it sounds like one of the most dry, boring areas uh, you could imagine, and it's probably going to be the most important thing moving forward. It's where we get our understanding of concepts and problems. Um, it's where we uh, establish what we believe to be the so-called truth of a matter, um, such that our models learn that truth. Um, and so, you know, how we do this, how we uh, establish pr- protocols is going to be really, really important moving forward. It's also incredibly time-consuming and hard. As I say, we, we started with this very diffuse understanding of the problem of generalization. The more we read examples, the more we talked about it, the clearer we got as a team of what we meant by it such that I could go off and annotate like 3000 things by hand. Um, And so, you know, I think spending time as a team building out how you understand a concept, but it's always going to be in conversation with the text. That is to say, what's, what's amazing about the process of annotation is it's essentially the discipline of literary, literary studies in, in microcosm. You do close readings, you mark texts up, You try and arrive at inferences and understandings of those things, and then you share those understandings with each other so that you arrive at something shared. So the only difference is rather than me come up with my highly idiosyncratic subjective interpretation of a text, what I'm trying to do is read it as closely as possible to understand the consistent structures inside of that text such that somebody else might also see those things. It's a very different kind of mentality that that thinks about consensus. You know, what do I think you might think? as opposed to idiosyncrasy and charisma. What's the most interesting thing that I can say about this, regardless of what anybody else thinks? And that kind of reorientation around close reading, I think is a really powerful move that annotation uh, is going to sort of do for us. Um, But we have to spend a lot of time working together on this process. We have a new special issue coming out in the Journal of Cultural Analytics that's about this exact thing of how do we create annotative schemes for different kinds of concepts. So I, you know, I see this as a very large research area moving forward. Um, the book tries to document for people how we go about doing it um, and how it serves as the foundation of model building and transparency as well, right? We can document all this, which is what makes it very different from traditional practices of close reading, where we're not really sure why anybody's making the judgments they're making. They just kind of do it, explicate and infer and move on. You know, here we're, our goal is really consensus and transparency. Yeah, that's one of the, I mean, the reason that I wanted to speak with you about this book is this, I've, you know, shared interest in this. And I think this is absolutely right, that annotation is really at the heart of the kind of um, sort of uh, humanistic engagement with probabilistic thinking. And I was really struck by, uh, you know, as someone who does a lot of annotations, both on my own and with other teams, both sort of single discipline and multidisciplinary teams, I was really interested in the thinking that you and your colleagues had done around how, um, how the annotation shed light on these like issues of disciplinary specificity in generalization, right? Like when you realize that someone had um, annotated something as a generalization or a particular type of generalization, if you want to get into those details that you might have annotated differently, or if there were categories of generalization that, you know, ended up being quite specific to literary studies, say, 
um, as opposed to the history or sociological examples that you were looking at, or potentially even further afield if you, you know, came across other um, other disciplinary examples along the way. Yeah, I mean, my my experience with any of this stuff, any project we ever worked on, is there every project is incredibly domain specific. It's you know, it's very hard <laughs> to to use the term to generalize out of domains to other domains as say discourses or the idea of discourse is a very powerful construct. Um, that is to say, there's institutional ways that language gets used and moving between them is, a, is, has very high costs. And so at a practical level, what that meant was I was in the best position to diagnose generalizations in literary studies because I was the one invest sort of embed, m- embedded most deeply in the discipline. Um, and it was harder for other people to do that. And that's just kind of a reality of how discourse works. Um, We see this when you build a model based off of certain annotations, and then you try and use it for some other purpose. That that out of domain, there's so much loss and accuracy and reliability that happens. And this is something that people in machine learning work on all the time. Um, But just sort of experientially, what I can communicate to people is like, this is a very major issue and something you always have to think about that every time you've annotated something, you've done so within a discursive context, which means it has a kind of institutional foundation, which means when you move it, somewhere else, um, the, the applicability, reliability, and certainty is going to degrade um, probably quite quickly and quite strongly such that you're going to have to redo the process, even if it's very similar. And I can give you a concrete example. We're, we've been working a lot on narrative um, and annotating uh, passages for their what we call narrativity, as I say, the, the reader's sense of uh, narration occurring in a text. And depending on the, the sort of fields of text that we're annotating, if we transfer those models to other areas, um, we immediately see kind of performance declines in the models because um, there are textual qualities that the model hasn't learned that are discursively specific to those new kinds of texts. And so my experience would be, you know, the mission of general language models is to me a very paradoxical one in, in machine learning. And, and there's been you know, lots of discussion about this, but I, I sort of always start from the premise of like the idea of a general language model is just a non-starter uh, when you think about kind of humanistic or cultural views of how the world works. That is to say, what we really have are context specific language use. And there's really no such thing as general language. <laughs> there's, there's language codes we use within social settings, within institutional context, and those shift dramatically, you know, by historical period, by discourse domain. And so we're always re-annotating. We're always re-establishing our understanding of a problem every time we move uh, a discursive framework. And that's just really important for people to keep, keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think one of the things that's actually really exciting about, um, you know, the, all of these considerations around annotation and the impact they have, how we, how we use them, uh, in a machine learning context is that it's, you know, it's part of this process of making our work more transparent, right. And in, in having to write the guidelines for annotating, uh, in, in evaluating how annotators compare to each other, um, you know, all of that work, which, you know, as, as you lay out for the experiment you've done here, uh, is really a part of, I think the shift, you know, that, that you're advocating for more broadly, uh, in, in the book. 
yeah, the, the, the openness, I mean, I definitely caught the sort of openness bug, um, and the open science bug, I, I, I find incredibly powerful and persuasive. Um, and when we talked about sort of, you know, germinations of this book, one of them was the reproducibility crisis. Mm-hmm. Like all of that was happening right around when we were uh, working on this project, <clears throat> excuse me, or I was sort of encountering that information and it really, uh, it really dawned on me that, there was so much lack of transparency in humanities research and that the, the, the power of transparency is it, it foregrounds all these very, very subjective choices. Um, and that's incredibly important for the research process because it impacts the validity and the reliability of what we think we know. And um, I think just uh, integrating that into our everyday practices is going to take a long time, but is incredibly important. And there's so many ways when I look across the humanities and especially literary studies, there's so many ways openness is not the driving priority of research. And we think about archives, uh, digitization histories, access to materials, open data, sharing of underlying things. Like it's just, it's going to take a very long time to begin to insert uh, these priorities of openness and transparency across research. Um, but it's going to have very powerful effects because it's going to reveal the subjectivity that is shot through the research process. And then it's going to prioritize consensus and sharing. That is to say, um, well, this is the way you did it. Now I'm going to do it this way. How do our, our ideas align or, or are they misaligned? Um, and why is that the case? And now I have the tools to engage with what you did and you have the tools to engage with what I did. And then we can sort of begin to merge those and, and think about sort of the, the consensus version of our insights, um, as opposed to this much more antagonistic version of literary studies where, you know, I charismatically try and say the opposite of what you say just to get attention. That, I think that it really shifts the goalposts of what uh, of what we're trying to do with our research. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that I want to give you a chance to speak about the results, but we'll, I want to come back to this issue sort of that you raise at the end of the book around um, around genius and what it, what it will mean to be open in literary studies uh, in, in, in the future. But just maybe uh, briefly, <laughs> um, I'm wondering about the results of the experiment and what surprised you uh, about the results uh, and of course, how did these results lead to the proposal that you make uh, in the latter uh, sort of third of the book about rethinking the use of case-based research and really about um, really about just what it means to be to be uh, making generalizations in in literary or humanistic studies? Yeah, I, I mean, I was both uh, kind of surprised and and not surprised at the results. In some sense, um, we, when when we ran the models and uh, kind of assessed everything, the rate of generalization was was very high. You know, it's it's somewhere between one every one one out of every three sentences in an introduction to an article to one out of every two sentences, and that's that's kind of an arresting fact for a discipline in which people can confidently state that humanists resist generalizations. Right. If that's your guiding ideology and yet we can show that something like generalizations are occurring one out of three, one out of two sentences, there's a real disconnect. Right? And, that, and that's a serious problem when there's a sort of ideological understanding of a discipline that is so out of step 
with its just own discursive practices. So, so for me, that was kind of, you know, arresting. And then when we put it in the context of other disciplines, we see how there's just a real parody. Everybody's doing it. Um, and, and there, you know, there was sort of a moment of pause to say, well, okay, what then? And, and there are these sort of two roads, right? One is, well, we should get back to particularism. We should stop this practice. And I thought, well, that's, you know, if it's shot through the discipline and the discourse already, undoing 50% of all statements is a big, tall order and may not even make sense. And so that, you know, I sort of dive into the intellectual tradition, starting with Schleiermacher, of that importance of... Um, a kind of empirical, discursive, world-grounded understanding of language. Um, and so, you know, that's what kind of led me down that pathway is to say, well, this stuff is everywhere. This is, you know, everybody's doing it and they're doing it a lot. So what then? Um, and then there was sort of, you know, on the other hand, right? Okay, so we can, you know, confidently say that generalization is thriving as a discursive practice in literary studies, right? So the, the, the hypothesis that, that humanists or people in literary studies don't generalize is a very poor hypothesis. Um, okay, so if they're doing it, um, you know, what then? Should we tell everybody to stop? Um, or should everybody, you know, just stop what they're doing and change their methods, right? Both of these things are very unrealistic. And so this kind of leads to the other pathway of the book, which is to say, okay, well, what are the discursive dimensions of literary studies that don't fit with the sciences, right? We can show that generalization in literary studies looks a lot like other disciplines. We're all doing it. And that's the nature of scholarship is to generalize about the world. But there's also all this interesting other stuff going on in literary studies. And that's kind of where the, the, the last half of the book goes is to say, well, hey, you know, wait a minute. Um, we do have this interesting, like these discursive traits that are very different from other fields. And how can we lean into those and think about that, what I call the sort of speculative dimensions of research as valuable in themselves as well. And so if we sort of put aside these practices of generalization and are much more transparent, that we're not going to try and generalize, but we're going to speculate and challenge ourselves conceptually, and that our, the creative cultural material we spend time thinking about is good to do that with. That was what interested me as a sort of alternative scenario that if, you know, if we're going to care about generalization, then we definitely need to change our methods to use, you know, six novels to talk about the history of objects in literature. You know, I'm working on a project on literary things right now. You know, this is the standard model, right? This is, you know, Bill Brown's whole book. He talks about like eight works and he generalizes about the entire like 20th century's relationship to things. Like that's just not okay. Like that's just totally uncredible research. And there's a reason why there's a decline in interest in humanities research. And, you know, my argument is it's epistemological. It's, it's simply that we're making claims that nobody believes because the evidence we're using is very uncredible and not replicable and not reproducible. And so, you know, these methods, quantitative computational methods can push us in that direction. And I think for that reason, they're great. It's going to take a very long time to integrate them and integrate them well into our field. But there's this other dimension that I think we don't also want to lose sight of, which is that speculative creative dimension. And that's super important to the humanities as well. And so I didn't want to make this sort of a monovocal book about like, hey, we need to be more empirically legitimate as a discipline moving forward, which I think is true. Um, I also wanted to say, hey, there are these kind of very quirky, interesting things we've been doing all along that we can also detect empirically. 
And can we lean into those more as well? And again, you know, it's really about pulling these things apart, right? The, the curse of Lorenzo Valla is doing the speculation and the empiricism at the same time. And the goal of can we be wrong is to say, let's undo this coupling and either do empirically grounded, reliable, reproducible, uh, transparent research, or let's do some speculative, creative, crazy things to really push our thoughts in, in new directions. Um, and I think they're both incredibly valuable and to see them as distinct projects. Yeah. And I, I mean, I like the way that at one point in the book that you point out that sort of one might lead to the other, right? That that we, we need the creativity to kind of posit hypotheses that we will then test uh, on, on samples that are very, you know, well-defined with clear annotation rules and things like this. And, and I think it's, it's really important to, to see, yeah, both their distinctiveness, but also their potential complement, you know, complementarity, um, you know, across, across sort of the long tail of a project. Um, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I mean, that, I, you know, I try and underscore that at the end of the book and, and mm-hmm. certainly you know, everything I ever write <laughs> talks about the mutuality of these methods. And and this is something that, you know, I think people on the traditional side of the aisle, they, they, they sort of invoke a vision of computational research or digital humanities that's very binary, you know, that it's, uh, you can't do this other thing anymore. It's, it's distant, not close reading. And it's, it gets sort of tiresome to have that argument because no one in our field talks this way. And so this is something that sort of, you know, we're being spoken for in very tiresome ways. Um, and so emphasizing that mutuality, you know, we, we have to keep doing it over and over again, simply because otherwise we get sort of reified and constructed by the other side as not doing that. But as you say, it is really crucially important to link these traditions together, that they flow into each other. You can't do them simultaneously in the same work, um, but they are connected in a larger process of, you know, of human inquiry. And that's really important to understand and to move past these really, really tired binaries that people who aren't engaged in computational research really need to set up to maintain their own sort of status and identity and well-being. Um, and it, it just needs to like go away. Um, but it's going to take some conceptual reorientation, right? We need to accept that, um, you can engage in creative speculative research and that has value not only in and of itself, but to inform future empirical uh, research and, and seeing that mutuality is clearly still an ongoing project. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, lots of work in the future. Um, I, I just want to sort of give you some space to talk about how, you know, writing this book and um, working on generalization, um, you know, has informed the work you've been doing since the book has come out. Um, what kinds of cool new things you've been working on, um, on your own or, or in the lab with other colleagues? So the, the direction we've gone since then, uh, you know, I think the, the generalization book was, was very fun to work on and, and kind of establish a baseline of, of research practices. And, and like I said, these kind of uh, forking path choices that one can make about one's own research. Um, I, you know, I've, I've largely stayed the course of doing this more machine learning driven empirical research and, you know, for better or worse, you know, the more I experience it, the more I work with it, the more comfortable I get. And the, the sort of, uh, 
you know, not rote, but it becomes more seamless as a practice, which is a nice place to be as a researcher where you're not reinventing the wheel or trying to figure everything out as you go, but being able to say, okay, I, I, I have a fairly well-defined process here and now I can apply it to questions that really interest me. So what we're spending a lot of time in the lab doing now is really trying to think about this idea of what we call fictions functions. So we're sort of very invested in thinking about the, the social value of fictional storytelling and using uh, empirical research, but not just any kind, we're just you know using big data, using uh, the sort of large amounts of observations and texts that exist out in the world to try and make inferences about why for the last couple of centuries, uh, people tell, continue to tell made up stories. And so that's sort of a question that, you know, just really interests me as a reader and as a researcher of fiction. Um, and I think the, the ways in which we've traditionally gone about this, so to say reading some great works, isn't really a reliable way to do it. Um, and I think there's a very long, interesting tradition of empirical reader studies that can get at this where you sort of do experiments on people in labs to try and infer, like, why are they reading fiction? And what effect does it have on them? Um, our approach is to say, well, look, People have been, you know, recording these stories for a very long time, and there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of them out in the world. Uh, what do they say? And so, by using these kind of methods, we can begin to understand that much bigger population of uh, made-up stories that circulate out in the world. And part of understanding them is to compare them to uh, true stories, um, and also to things that aren't stories. And so, we kind of set up all these discursive uh, frameworks. Let's say there's narrativity on the one hand, there's a storytelling itself, which is really interesting to us. And we're doing a lot of projects on how we can use computation and machine learning to understand narration. And then moving into specifically, you know, what is fiction doing um, as a practice? And, and one of the things we're really leaning into quite strongly is this insight into, uh, you know, I use kind of different terms for this depending on the audience, but for an academic audience, we talk, I talk a lot about the sort of phenomenological dimensions of fictional storytelling, that it leans very strongly and coherently into this idea of embodied experience. Um, and that has interesting implications for thinking through what the role of uh, fictionality is in everyday life. Um, it pushes against some received inherited theories of like theory of mind, that what we're doing when we read fiction is to experience other people's consciousness. Um, the strong degrees of embodiment that we're finding in our uh, research suggests a kind of different framework, um, that it's not just about, you know, learning how other people think or empathizing with strangers, um, but it's really about uh, activating uh, a sort of phenomenological theory of life and living and knowledge. Let's say an immersive embodied experience of the world is what fiction brings to the foreground. And when we see it that way, we can begin to start to think about and hypothesize, like, why is this thing a social good? Why should we promote it? Why should we support it? Why should it be in schools? Um, why should people be taught to read it? Right. So, so you can sort of once we begin to understand these foundations, uh, it can have all sorts of like interesting and important policy implications and advocacy implications, which is sort of would be then the next step to, to follow on from this research. That sounds really exciting. I'm looking forward to hearing and reading about it. Um, so I'm just going to say thanks for being on the show. This was really, really wonderful to speak to speak with you about. Can we be wrong? The problem of textual evidence in a time of data, which uh, is just recently out with the Cambridge Elements series from Cambridge University Press. And I also wanted to flag for listeners the issue of cultural analytics that you mentioned on annotation, which I'm sure if someone is listening to this, 
they'll probably also be interested in that. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, until next time. Um, and uh, signing off. Thank you very much for having me.